Chapter 15 A Final Test It was the morning of the 10th of December that the eager little group assembled at dawn on Marston's pasture to witness the test of the Kane aircraft. Steve was so preoccupied with his final adjustments and anxiety lest he should overlook some important point that he never thought of danger. He would not have remembered even his goggles had not Orissa handed them to him and told him to put them on. This was the first time Mr. Cumberford had witnessed a performance of the aeroplane, yet he was much less excited than his daughter, who could not withdraw her gaze from the device and was nervously attentive to every move that the young aviator made. Orissa, most confident of the result, was the most composed of all. When all was ready, Steve took his seat, started the motors, and when they had acquired full speed, threw in the clutch. The aeroplane ran less than 50 feet on its wheels before it began to rise. When it steadily soared into the air and mounted to an elevation of several hundred feet. By this time, the aviator, who had kept a straight course, was half a dozen miles from the starting point. But now he made a wide circle and, returning, passed over Marston's pasture at the same high altitude. The speed of the aircraft was marvelous. Mr. Cumberford declared it was making a mile a minute, and that estimate was probably correct. After circling for a while, Steve descended to a hundred feet in a straight dive, holding the device in perfect control and maintaining at all times an exact balance. At a hundred feet, he tested the rudders thoroughly, proving that he could alter his course at will, make sharp turns, and circle in a remarkably small space. Then, having been in the air 27 minutes by the watch, he descended to the ground, rolled 100 feet on his running gear, and came to a halt a few paces away from the silent, fascinated group of watchers. Not a hitch had occurred. The Kane aircraft was as perfect a creation as its inventor had planned it to be. Orissa gave Steve a kiss when he alighted, but did not say a word. Sipple impulsively seized the aviator's hands and pressed them until he flushed red. Mr. Cumberford lit a fresh cigarette, nodded approvingly, and said, All right, Steve, it interests me. It almost seemed alive, remarked Steve with pardonable exuberance. Why, I believe it would fly bottom side up if I asked it to. Are any changes necessary? inquired Mr. Cumberford. Only one or two, and those are unimportant. The steering wheel is too loose and needs tightening. The left guide wires are a bit too taut and need to be relieved. Half an hour's tinkering, and the aircraft will be as perfect as I know how to make it. As they were wheeling it back to the hangar, Sybil asked, Weren't you frightened, Mr. Kane, when you were so high above the earth? Oh, no. It's far safer a mile up than it is fifty or a hundred feet. There are no dangerous air currents to contend with, and the machine glides more smoothly the more air it has underneath it. When I am near the earth, I sometimes get a little nervous, but never when I'm far up. But suppose you should fall from that distance. Fall? Oh, but you can't fall very easily with this sort of biplane. At any angle, it's kind of a parachute, you know, for the hinged ends automatically spread themselves against the air pressure. And as for a tumble, you know, a fall of fifty feet will kill you just as sure as one from several hundred. If a fellow can manage to stick to his airplane, he's pretty safe. It seems such a fragile thing, observed Sybil musingly. Just wooden ribs and canvas, laughed Steve.
but anything stronger would be unnecessary and therefore foolish. Now then, said Mr. Cumberford, when the aircraft rested once more upon his rack, I've got something to tell you, Cain. I've known it for several days, but I've refrained from speaking until you had made your trial. There was an ominous suggestion in the words. Steve turned and looked at him questioningly. Any bad news, sir? Time will determine if it's bad or good. Anyhow, it's news. Merton is building his own aircraft. An aeroplane? I said an aircraft. But that word designates only my own machine. Merton is building your machine. Steve stared at him, doubtful if he heard it right. Orissa stood motionless, growing white and red by turns. Sybil's lips curled in a sneer, and she said, My clever uncle, what a resourceful man he is. I, I don't understand, stammered Steve. It's simple enough, replied Cumberford. Burton sent to Washington for copies of your plans and specifications. Built a hangar and a workshop over in South Pasadena, and employed a clever mechanic from Cleveland to superintend the construction. It's already well underway. How do you know this, sir? inquired Steve breathlessly. The clever mechanic from Cleveland is my own man, who has been my confidential agent for years. And you permit him to do this work? cried the young man indignantly. To be sure. If Brewster loses the job, someone else will get it who is not my agent. It's the only way I can keep accurate account of what Burton is up to. They were all silent for a time while they considered this startling information. By and by, Cumberford said, Burton has joined the Aero Club. He has donated a handsome cup for the best endurance flight during the coming meet at Dominguez, and in some way has made himself so popular with the officials he has been appointed a member of the committee on arrangements. I dropped in at the club yesterday, for I'm a member, and made this discovery. My scheming brother-in-law has some dusky, deep-laid plans, and is carrying them out with particular attention to detail. Do you think it concerns us, sir? asked Arissa anxiously. Yes. It isn't extraordinary that Burton should take a fancy to aviation. He is full of fads and fancies, and such a thing is liable to interest him. It interests me. But the meat in the nut is the fact that he is building a copy of the Kane aircraft, merely adding a few details which he will declare are improvements. Can't we issue an injunction and stop him? asked Steve. I've seen a lawyer about that. We can't prove infringement at this stage of the game, and it would be folly to attempt it. Burton's plan is to exhibit his machine first, then keep yours off the field during the meet, and afterwards claim that you are infringing upon his rights. He has organized a stock company, keeping most of the stock himself, has entered his device in all the aviation tournaments throughout the country, and is issuing a circular offering the machines for sale. I have a handproof fresh from the printer of that circular. But who will be his aviator? asked Steve with a puckered brow. His former chauffeur, Mr. Totem Tyler, is one. He is now looking for another. Steve drew a long breath. What can we do? he asked in a bewildered tone. Checkmate him, was the composed reply. 
How, sir? Well, we know pretty well all of Burton's plans. He doesn't suspect we know a thing. He believes he'll be able to keep his secret until his aeroplane is ready and he can announce it in the newspapers and create a sensation. He has concocted a very pretty trick. Until this date, no one has ever heard of the Kane aircraft. After the Burton improved biplane is exploited and is praise on every tongue, you won't be able to get even a hearing with your invention, much less a chance to fly it. Steve sat down and covered his face with his hands. His attitude was one of deep despair. When will Mr. Burton's machine be finished? asked Arissa thoughtfully. He expects to make the first trial a week from tomorrow. He has kept a force of expert men at work. They haven't attempted to make the Kane engine yet, but they're using a type that has worked successfully in many biplanes. So his machine has grown into existence very quickly. A week from tomorrow, repeated Arissa softly, and Steve is ready today. Steve looked up quickly, and Sybil laughed at him. You silly boy, she said. Can't you understand what Daddy means by a checkmate? Steve turned to Mr. Cumberford, who was lighting a fresh cigarette. If you place the matter in my hands, said the gentleman, I will proceed to put a spoke in Burton's wheel, so to speak. Heretofore, Steve, I have been a mere onlooker, an interested friend, I may say. At this juncture, you'd better make me your manager. Would you accept the position? asked the boy. Yes, there isn't much else to interest me just now, and I... I hate Burton. Poor uncle, sighed Sybil. On what terms will you undertake this, sir? Steve inquired with anxiety. Why, I may have to spend a lot of money. Probably will. And my time is valuable. When I'm not here, I'm moping at the Alexandria Hotel. So I propose you give me 10% of your profits for the first three years. That's absurd, sir, declared Steve. There's not going to be much profit at first, and 10% of it won't amount to much of anything. Mr. Comerford smiled, a grim smile that was one of his peculiarities. It'll do, Steve. I'll make it pay me well. See if I don't. But you may add to the demand, if you like, by promising to present my daughter the fourth complete cane aircraft that your factory turns out. No, the first, cried Steve. No, the fourth. We want the first three to go where they'll advertise us. Is it a bargain, Mr. Cade? Steve grasped his hand. Of course, sir, he replied gratefully. Not sure we can defeat Mr. Burton's conspiracy, but I know you will do all that is possible. And thank you, sir, he added again, pressing the elder man's hand. Arissa took Mr. Comperford's hand next. She did not express her gratitude in words, but the man understood her, and to hide his embarrassment, began to search for his cigarette case. As for Sybil, she regarded the scene with an amused smile, and there was a queer look in her dark eyes. Now said Arissa. Let us go into breakfast. You must all be nearly famished. Yes, let us eat so I can get back to work in town, agreed Mr. Cumberford cheerfully. The campaign begins this very morning, and it may take a few people by surprise. Remember, Steve, you're to stand ready to carry out any plans your manager makes. I understand, sir. <laughs>